Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. First issue. All right, we are back on Talking Comics, and of course, I'm joined by Steve, Bob, and Stephanie. Uh, but joining us today is a very special guest. He's the creator of Stumptown, Whiteout, Queen and Country. He's also worked for both Marvel and DC, writing Batman, Wonder Woman, Punisher, and much, much more. Mr. Greg Rucka, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Comics. My pleasure to be here. Awesome. Um, so I want to start out with kind of a, uh, a selfish question for myself. Uh, Punisher is a character that I have never really been interested in. Uh, but your take on the character and your run is one of my favorite runs in the last couple of years of any character. Um, and I want to know, before you started writing it, were you a big fan of the character? And how did you kind of find your way into Frank's story? Uh, I wasn't. I was actually not a fan at all. Um, mostly because I'm probably much older than you guys. And I remember uh, when Frank was nothing but a mouthpiece for sort of far right, you know, law and order, capital punishment, you know, those limp-wristed, weak-willed liberals are the problem sort of thing. (laughs) I am a limp-wristed, weak-willed liberal. Huzzah! That's two of us, at least. I have been for ages. Um, it's, it's, It's in my genes at this point. So I'd always been... You know, my my initial encounters with Frank, and I'm talking, you know, late 80s, early 90s, had always been really, you know, unpleasant. I hadn't really liked the character. He seemed to me to be a cheap, you know, Charles Bronson and Death Wish knockoff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when Steve Wacker came after me on the character, and you know, and I had read what Garth had done, I was reading, but... Jason Aaron had done, I'd read Remender, I'd read Fraction, and, you know, and certainly they they had, they had walked uh, a path far, far away from those initial impressions I had had of the Punisher, but I still wasn't, you know, I still wasn't sure, and, you know, one of the big problems I had with him, especially, because when Steve called me, when Steve Wacker called me, who was the editor at Marvel that, you know, edited the book, and offered it to me. He said, "He said, it's, I'm, I want you to think about the Punisher." And I said, "Hell no!" And then he said, "And to make it really interesting, I want you to think about him in the six one six. And I said something along the lines of, "Are you out of your mind?" Um, because that's always been the fundamental problem with the Punisher for me. Mm-hmm. You know, even because I, I, you know, I, I write revenge fantasy. You know, I dig revenge fantasy. I understand <laughs> revenge fantasy, but. You can't have a viable revenge fantasy with an anti-hero who has literally got a body count in triple digits mm-hmm. um, in the same world where there's a Spider-Man. Right. And 
there's a daredevil and there are Avengers. Eventually somebody's going to notice and be like, <laughs> hey, knock that off. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so Steve is, Steve is very persuasive and he was very persistent. He kept calling me back and he kept asking me the right questions. And I found myself thinking about Frank more and more. And I sort of, well, obviously I hit a point where I was like, hey, you know what? There's, I have to put away my bias here. And I have to view the character, you know, as he is and, and, and ask myself some questions because you can't really say, well, the reason that Spider-Man and Daredevil and so on haven't gone after him is because, uh, nobody wanted to write that, you know, that's, that's not, <laughs> that's not a story answer. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense, that may be the real answer, you know, right. but uh, definitely, but but in the parameters of the story, if you if you take Frank seriously, and when you write any of these characters, I don't care who it is, it's, you know, it can be some guy over at DC who's got a magic ring that he can use his willpower to make it do things, <laughs> you know, which just think that concept through, <laughs> you know, or you know, you've got some guy who is nigh eternal because of some genetic mutation that allows him to regenerate from a drop of blood, yet yeah. he never has rejected the adamantium somehow infused in his body um oops yeah <laughs> i mean there there's a great quote you know i, I heard from denny o'neill and denny always attributed it to to the 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 great editor archie goodwin which is uh we we don't ask why the batmobile doesn't get caught in traffic um and you know there's certain things you don't you don't worry about right you have to take seriously and if you take frank seriously and he deserves to be taken seriously, you find yourself having to draw some very interesting conclusions. And some of those conclusions are he is very, very smart. And to do what he does, if, if, we, if we're going to accept that he does exist in a Marvel universe that has a Doctor Doom and an X-Men and, you know, a Hellfire Club and Galactus, for him to survive in that world not only does he have to be very, very smart, but he has to be exceptionally disciplined. And more than anything else, I think it was that element of discipline um, that I, I, I found the most compelling. I, I, I like characters who have pathos. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, revenge is never enough. You, you have, there's always got to be a Batman story you know, at some point where he, whether he wants to admit it or not, he's kind of over the death of his parents. Because <laughs> um, carrying that around for 25 years is a long time, you know. Mm -hmm. We forget and we grow. And, you know, Frank can, Frank is never going to forget his wife and his children. But at a certain point, it has moved beyond being about Maria and Frank Jr. and, 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 and et cetera, et cetera. And then... Once I started thinking about that, he became kind of amazing to me. Hmm. I mean, in all sincerity, I, I I found myself going, "Holy, can I swear?" I don't know. Yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I keep I keep not wanting to say "Holy shit." I'm going to say "Holy shit." I found myself <laughs> saying "Holy shit." You know, this guy has to 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 achieve this is remarkable. Hmm. You know, the discipline, the self sacrifice. And there are elements of, of, of that and, and, you know, that I responded to very strongly. I liked stories about soldiers. Um, 
I did a lot of research when I was writing the initial Batwoman stuff, you know, that J.H. Williams drew. And I found myself, and, and my novels as well have sort of turned more towards the military out of crime and espionage. And all those things sort of came together. So, you know, it was interesting because when I, when it was first proposed to me, if you had told me that he was going to become one of the um, most favorite characters I've, I've been privileged to write, I would have laughed <laughs> a long time. Uh, and here I am, you know, two, three months after we've completed the run. And, you know, I can't it's, – it's possible, but I highly doubt that Marvel is ever going to call me and say, hey, would you like to write Frank again? You know, I think I, think I may be done forever mm. with him. And, you know, I, I really, I had a blast. He, he taught me a lot about how I approach characters, about writing. I, I, I'm very proud of that run. I'm surprised it worked as well as it did, all told, frankly. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was very resistant to even picking it up, and it took a lot of cajoling from one of our very good friends to, to eventually get me to pick it up. And once I did, because like you, I wasn't, I had no connection to that character, but your take on it, I, I think coming from a similar place and a lot of people who don't yeah. like the character are coming from opened it up in a lot yeah. of ways. Well, and I think, I mean, frankly, you know, it's, it's always cool. It's like, you know, you know, it's like going to a movie, any movie where, uh, you know, it's great to see an action sequence. It's really tiring to see an action sequence for 120 minutes. You yeah. know, after a while, the glamour is gone. It's one of the reasons, you know, like I loved Casino Royale. I hated Quantum of Solace. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest problems I had with Quantum of Solace is it never catches its breath. If you start a stopwatch from the opening of that movie, it goes almost 20 minutes before <laughs> there is a sequence of dialogue that lasts for more than two minutes. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's somebody shooting, fighting, car chasing, crashing, exploding, dying. And, you know, Frank gets boring if all he does is go, I has a machine gun. Boom, yeah. boom, boom. <laughs> But but when you turn him into somebody who or or when I won't even say turn him into because he always was, when you respect the fact that there is so much happening before he pulls that trigger, mm -hmm. um, and after he pulls that trigger, that that the violence is not in and of itself the goal, you know. And and one of the things, one of the reasons why we had that fight with the mutate vulture so early on was to show, you know what, he gets hurt. He can't afford to get hurt. Yeah. You know, he goes down for 100 days. Yeah. You know, he comes out of it alive. He's got to recover. And just about anybody else in the Marvel Universe, they go, ow, that, that hurt. All <laughs> right, let's go again. You know? Yeah. So. Awesome. Well, was so much of it you get to see through the other characters there, through Rachel, you know, where he, yeah. he'd tell her about the, the discipline necessary and, and not to do this. And uh, I, the one quote I pulled from Ozzie Clemens here, it's, um, just because you don't weep for the people he kills, detective, doesn't make Castle a hero. Yeah. So you, 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 you're commenting within the story itself on, on everybody else's opinions, Ben Urich's and... and, and uh, you get to the other detectives that the, the police are rooting for him. You hear from Warren that the NYPD, half of them want him to do what he does. And yeah. How yeah. did you, coming across that, all those different viewpoints, difficult, easy? How did you come across that uh, perspective to tell a story from? Well, I, I always find, you know, it's, it, it, there are a lot of parallels between Frank and, 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 and Batman. 
honestly. And Batman, to me, with few exceptions, and one notable exception being what Scott Snyder's been doing, you know, certain characters have been so well explored and so well defined that you don't actually, you know what they're going to do in every situation, right? Sometimes you know exactly what they're going to say. And at that point, the stories become, I think, less about, you, you become a little more limited in what you can say about the character. And one of the things that struck me about Frank very early on was that this is not a guy who has people. That's part of, this, that's part of what he's sacrificed. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have people. He can't afford them. And not simply because they're a tactical liability, but because I think emotionally he's not dead. And he, you know, he still has a pulse. He still, he still grieves. And he can be angered. And he cannot afford any of those compromises. So everything is at arm's length. It's, the hostility to Rachel you know, is not solely that she endangers his mission, but it's also simply he does not want anybody entering the orbit. Because if somebody enters the orbit, God forbid there's an emotional connection. And that doesn't mean love. It doesn't even mean like. But having a partner, and you see it, you know, the parallel, the obvious parallel on the run is, is, is Ozzy and Bolt, yeah. which is a relationship that at the beginning, they don't really like each other. You know, Ozzy thinks that Walter is a sham, that he, and, and he's right. <laughs> um, but, but by the time you get to the end of the, the run, you know, Ozzy actually says to him, you're a real police. You know what I mean? And Yeah, he's very proud so, of him, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the one of the things that I wanted to do was if Frank wasn't talking and, and if there was nobody, you know, he's not this is not a guy who's going to say, hey, how about those Mets? You know, I mean, he's just not going to strike up a conversation. So the only other view was to see him from outside and that differing POV. You know, that's both me working out all of my different issues with the character and also trying to honor how complex he is. In a world that, and, and one can argue that, you know, the DC universe is more black and white, say, than the Marvel universe, for instance. There are more gray tones over at Marvel. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's actually true. But even if it is true, Frank is an anti-hero. He is not a hero. Mm -hmm. um, he is not a good guy. He is a man with no name character. And that and and he is much more that than Logan is, incidentally, mm -hmm. um, because Logan, when push comes to shove, you believe will be on the side of the angels, um, and 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 Frank's, you know, fr and and because of that, Frank is like I said, he's he, he, he's much more complicated, and it's unfair to him to simplify him. So having Bolt feel one way about him and Ozzy feel another and Nora feel one way about him and, you know, Rachel feel another, all of that to me was, you know, all that to me was about exploring who Frank is. And Frank is also unpredictable. You know, I, I think at the start of the run you would have expected, and, you know, to avoid spoilers, I will just say that at the start of the 16-issue run, you would expect Frank to resolve the situation at the end of the 16-issue run a certain way. Mm -hmm. And his resolution is surprising, certainly to Rachel. Um, and that was kind of crucial to me, too. And one of the things that Wacker and I talked about was, you know, that self-imposed sort of isolation that Frank puts himself into to protect himself 
one, you know, one is forced to ask, has he actually changed in the course of those 16 issues? Did it fail him? Mm -hmm. Because he let somebody come into the orbit. For better or for worse, he let Rachel in. And I, I, I think you can make a persuasive argument that simply by dint of doing that, he would he, he he changed you get the ending you get mm -hmm. if that hadn't happened aside from the obvious fact that she wouldn't have been there right <laughs> it, it would never have been it never would have been an option for him and you can extend that all the way through Warzone as well so right absolutely absolutely um uh, stephanie i know speaking of nora and rachel we had a question from a listener kind of about your your female character stephanie do you want to yeah, absolutely um one of our listeners via Facebook, Lewis Carter, sent in this question. You've uh -huh. written some really strong and interesting female characters in your time. Electra, Renee Montoya, Carrie in Whiteout. How do you feel about women who are currently portrayed in comics uh, generally? How do I feel about, meaning yeah. how do I feel about how, how they are being portrayed right now? Yes. <laughs> I am not impressed. <laughs> I think there's uh, there's still too many examples of um, of uh, a guy with tits shorthand or your eye candy and male fan service. Mm -hmm. um, I don't feel you know. I, I think I think honestly we backslid. I think if you had asked me this question four or five years ago, I'd have said we're doing pretty well. We are we're not there by a long shot, but we're making progress. You ask me now, and it seems to me that um, we we vacillate between outright misogyny uh, and uh, at best tokenism um, you know I'm, I'm, I'm a feminist I, and, 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 and in saying that what I'm saying is I actually want to see women treated equally um, which means that when I write a story I want to be as horrible to them as I am to my guys right <laughs> right yeah they, they don't get kid gloves just because they're women. Mm -hmm. That that's bullshit, um, and by the same token, you know stories can be. <clears throat> look, art art is, and and comics are art, whether you want it or not. Uh, art is going to be political, uh, and we are we are <clears throat> we are engaged in commentary, um, but we do not. But the purpose is to tell stories, and you cannot just tell stories <clears throat> with symbols with saying this is a representation. It, it's bad writing, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. Good writing means you're writing about characters. And I'm not seeing a lot of that with regards to... to I'm not seeing a lot of well-drawn women in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. They're there. I think they're too few and far between. But I can say the same thing about gay characters. I can say the same mm -hmm. thing about African-American characters, about Japanese-American, all Asian-Americans, or all Asians, frankly. I don't even need to hyphenate, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, it's a white male medium, um, for better or for worse. It's a white male medium, and and every now and then somebody comes along and says, "Well, maybe we should try to be more inclusive." And sometimes they succeed, but it seems to me lately that the market has gone the other way, or certain not the market, but the publishers certainly. And the problem with that is that the publishers respond to the market, and if the market doesn't say, "Hey, you know what? This is crap," they're going to keep publishing it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I have a follow-up to that too, just yeah. for myself. Please um, do. 
it's more just kind of, are there any books that stand out to you as doing it right? I mean, I'm sure it's a long list of the books that are doing it wrong, but is there anything, you know? Yeah, the list, the list of books that are doing it wrong is, <laughs> is, is much but, far. I feel like look, maybe pointing I, out I really, ones that maybe some of our readers could read. <laughs> well, look, I mean, I, I really, really like what Kelly Sue DeConnick is doing in Captain Marvel. All right. Um, I think that um, she is writing women uh, and they are people, you know, it, it, gender, <laughs> gender is part of character. It's not only character. I really, really have enjoyed what she's been doing there. I have to say, I was reading some stuff by, by, by Bendis recently, and I think he's doing a great job, honestly. Interesting. Um, and I know he gets, he, he has gotten a lot of stick in the past. Um, but I don't think he gets, he, he, I don't think he gets praised for those things. And, <laughs> and I really do like what he's been doing in, 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 in X-Men in particular. Um, you know, I, I'm going to tell you, I like the, uh, Clint Kate relationship in, uh, in Hawkeye mm-hmm. or Hawkeye, I guess. <laughs> um, I think what else I'm reading, uh, I haven't picked up a whole lot recently. Um, I go in cycles. There's a great big stack of comics in our bedroom right now, and Jen's gone through them, and it's my turn. But the problem is I'm, I'm trying to finish a novel. I'm trying desperately to finish a novel. And, uh, and when I'm at this stage in a novel, I cannot read fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if I do, I will start stealing from it. So, <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of comics I'm waiting on when I get, when I get out of the book. Mm-hmm. Your reward. Um, yeah. Well, you know, self-imposed exile. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, well, speaking of strong female characters, uh, you put a major role in the creation of Kate Kane and Batwoman. I was curious, have you been reading the current uh, Batwoman inside the DC New 52? Uh, no, I haven't. I tried. Um, and there were certain things that... J.H. and Hayden did. They made some choices that I was like, wow, that's not how I see her. And at that point, I was kind of like, I better stop before I make myself miserable and ruin a friendship. Whoa, uh, interesting. Hmm. You know, well, no, look, like, I, I'm sure there are writers out there who can invest time and energy and their passion into a character and then easily walk away and, uh, and, and read what everybody else is doing and not, uh, and not take it amiss. Um, I am not great at that. And I did not leave DC under the best of circumstances as has been recorded. Um, and frankly, I would have stayed with Kate for years to come if things had been different. So half of it is every time I read Batwoman, I am painfully reminded of what, what I might have done. Hmm. Um, and that's not to, you know, that's not to say whether or not I think what Jim's doing and what Hayden's doing is good or bad. It's just different, and my bias is such that, uh, and I admit it freely, I can't get past my bias. So, you know, it, there was a particular moment. It was the moment when Kate was calling Betty plebe. Oh, yes, I remember that. <laughs> and I read that, and I was like, that's not a term she would ever use for Betty. That is incorrect. That, that to me, read to me like, like half of the research got done, if that made sense, mm-hmm. you know? Hmm. That's not fair. I'm saying that's how it read to me. Right, right. Clearly, that was a decision that was made. Mm. Well, um, you've got such a it, personal stake in it that, of course, it's going to you know, come off differently exactly. to you. 
Yeah, and and so I mean that was the point where I read that, and when I when, and when I realized well Kate would never do that, I was like, except Kate's not yours, you can't say right. that, right? Because Kate Kate did do it. Look, it's right there on the page. So <laughs> yeah. shut up, sit down. <laughs> so the best thing I could do, kind of at that point, was recuse myself. I guess. Hmm. Um, I also have one more uh, question, more on a, a personal note, maybe like a little bit of a tech question uh, about the Punisher. I was curious. Um, Frank has an incredible arsenal of weaponry that he kind of brings around the Marvel universe. What kind of research goes into like the armaments that he uses for these stories? Do you do the research or do you leave that up for the artist? I will. No, 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 no. Oh God. No, um, no, never. No, no, no. I just, cause it seems no. like for certain situations, you're going to need certain, guns and certain equipment that there has to be every, some kind every of script okay. for the Punisher. And this was the, it was the most, it used to be the winner for this award was, um, the fourth, uh, I think it was the fourth part of the go storyline that I did with JH, the West point issue mm-hmm. had like, you know, a normal script for me is going to come in at over about 4,000 words. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's going to come out to about, you know, maybe 40 pages the way I space it, the way I write. And then at the end of that, I will add reference, right? This images and so on. And for the West Point issue, um, and, and understand, so that when this thing's printed out, it's maybe, you know, 150 to 200K before reference. And then with reference, it's like maybe a meg or two megabytes. That's the file. The West Point issue was a 45 megabyte file. Wow. <laughs> right. Punisher? Every freaking issue, man. It was like... <laughs> This is the weapon. This is the way. And, and more than that, because Punisher fans know their weapons. There is a group of Punisher fans that are watching the technical aspects and they're watching very carefully. And that's that's established in the history. You know, you used to be able to pick up issues that were Punisher Arsenal and you would know everything he was using. Right. right. Um, and there was an issue and I won't say which I, I will say that there was a moment where Frank appeared and he was holding his trusty 45 sideways. <laughs> and I had never been more shrill in my life. I mean, there were, you know, typos, misplaced balloons, pages that came out entirely wrong. And that's just part of the process, right? And I would always send an email to Steve and say, well, I'm really unhappy with this. Or what? This one I called him and I was like, you can't do that. You have to change it right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> And I was like, never mind the fact that no shooter in their right mind would do that, ever. But Garth had to go and do a story where he had a bunch of people shooting that way and then have Frank say they put the sights on the top for a reason. (laughs) And it doesn't matter that that was a Mac story. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Everybody remembers. He cannot shoot wrong. Mm -hmm. You know? Guns and ammo magazine nuts will call you out. Yeah. Mm and in all honesty, never mind the self-preservation aspect, and there was, because I knew that if that ran, they weren't going to yell at the artist about it. You know, they yeah, would yeah, be yeah. like, somehow that would have been my fault. But, <laughs> but on top of that, it, it, isn't, <clears throat> it is as crucial to the character and the storytelling as, you know, as, as Kate not wearing heels. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's part of character. Frank knows what to do with the gun. Anybody who knows what to do with a gun is going to tell you that you turn it sideways and you fire, you're going to hit nothing. (laughs) 
No, you'll miss water from a boat. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I, I actually took my son. My wife's going to hate me for saying this. I took my, my, my son is, uh, has, has reached an age where he finally made me um, uh, fulfill a, a, an agreement we had, which was when he was younger, he was curious about guns. And I told him, you know, when you're 13, uh, you and I will go uh, and visit uh, a friend of ours, Eric Troutman, and uh, we will show you how to use a firearm properly. Right, we're going to teach you to shoot properly. Because if nothing else, and especially in this day and age, I want him to know what happens should he encounter a gun in somebody's closet or whatnot. Right. You know, I want him to know how to make sure that weapon is safe. And I want him to know what happens. You know, And I wanted to take some of the mystique away. And I also wanted to make sure he had respect for it. So, you know, we, we, we took him shooting and... You know, and 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 while while we were out there, uh, Eric told the story of you know he he at one point had to carry a sidearm as part of his work, and um, you know he was he was licensed with a carry permit, and he talked about going to a range at one point, and there was uh, as he described it, you know, a local kid in gang colors, um, and you know they're at firing point side by side and this kid you know pulls out his weapon and does you know empties the clip sideways and is just all over the target you know and eric loads up and goes pop 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 pops having send his you know target well down range and brings it back with you know smiley face (laughs) (laughs) and just you know nods to the guy and heads home (laughs) you know it's so yeah uh i'm not sure what the what the moral of that story is except to say (laughs) Yes, we were very careful with all the technical aspects in the Punisher. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm yeah. so glad I asked. Yeah. Uh, Greg, I'd like to ask a question about Wonder Woman, which you had a great run on, but I'd like to preface it with this quote of yours, if you don't mind. Um, when you write characters like Batman, they're not yours, and writers who forget that should be kneecapped. Yeah. Superman is bigger than any writer. When I write these characters, I'm serving them. Yeah. And your Wonder Woman run, I mean, beginning with, I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of this, so it's the Hiketeia? Uh, the Hiketeia. Okay, I was close. <laughs> Not very, but uh, you definitely had a great take on her that sort of brought into play the original stories that William Marston was doing and the runs in between Perez's and Burns and so on, and really came to something special with it. Uh, how did you approach that character? Um, I spent a lot of time. There was about a four-year run-up to actually coming onto the book. Um, I had been offered the book not long after I started at DC, actually, and and I think and my response had been, "I'm not ready yet." Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about her. Um, I mean, a lot of time. But I do that. I mean, as, as talking about the Punisher, you know. I, I do that with every character. I, I, I try to give them I try to give them the time and consideration they're due. And I really do believe that, you know, if it's creator owned, they're mine and I can do whatever the hell I want. Mm-hmm. But when you are and it is a privilege, you know, when you're given the privilege of putting words into Superman's mouth or into Wolverine's mouth or, you know, into the Punisher's mouth, few though those words may have been <laughs> Um, you are, you're serving them. They're not yours. 
You know, so you want to find the best way to tell the stories that you think as a writer will show them in their best light, will show what makes them in particular as superheroes heroic. Um, and I think, you know, I think Diana is an incredibly, I, I, I think she's an incredible character. Uh, she may be arguably the all time favorite for me. Um, I think there's so much going on there and there's such depth and there's so much material to work with and so much gets consistently done wrong. Um, <laughs> You know, I really, I, I, it mattered to me. I really wanted to do well by her. I really wanted to do well by her. And I spent a long time asking myself, you know, what would she think of this? You know, what, why does she think that way about this? You know, how, how did this, how did this thinking evolve? Um, it was, it, it, it was something I spent, I spent quite a lot of time on. There was a period actually where Ivan Cohen, who was editing the book, when I was on it and I had talked about, um, trying to release online the essays in the, uh, in, in the, in the book that is being published in, in the run. Right. Oh, wow. So that, uh, you could, you know, go to somewhere on the DC website and you would read, you know, 3000 words by Diana Themyscira about, you know, this, that, or the other yeah. thing. And, oh boy, did that get shut down fast. Um, <laughs> Because when, well, because you know, they, a lot of these characters aren't political. Ironically, you know, again, we keep coming back to Frank, but you know, ironically, you can look at the, the approach that was this very, you know, might makes right, shoot the criminals dead, you weak liberals are the problem, and but the fact of the matter is, I don't believe in a political Frank. I just don't think he cares. He doesn't have time for it. Mm. You know. That's not what it's about. He doesn't give a rat's ass who's in office. <laughs> you know, there's a criminal on the street doing crime. You know, there's a rapist out there or a drug dealer or a serial murderer or whatnot. And he doesn't care if it's a Democrat or a Republican or a Libertarian or a Green. He, he has no time for it. You know, he doesn't care. But Diana, quite conversely, is absolutely political. And it's built into the character's DNA. She is from inception, a feminist character. And mm -hmm. I really feel that every time DC tries to run away from it, they screw her up worse. Um, and they're always trying to run away from it. Yeah, great. Diana, Diana has to have an opinion. You know, Batman and Superman, you don't need to know their opinions, really. You know, you need to know that Superman is true, <laughs> you know, and good. <laughs> And you need to know that Batman is a badass and will always mm -hmm. figure it out, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But Diana has a political agenda. And that means she has to take positions that are going to sometimes offend people. She is always going to be in favor of gay marriage, for instance. You know, <laughs> She's not going to wait till the polling comes back, <laughs> all right? She is, you know, that you can make a very persuasive argument both pro- uh, uh, pro-choice and anti-abortion with her, actually. You can go both ways. Um, I think she would certainly, you know, on, as an issue of a woman's right to control her body and her destiny uh, and her reproductive freedom, you know, there's, it's a no-brainer for her. Um, the question of how you define life 
And what is the termination of life? Something else entirely, right? Uh, here's Diana who, you know, and you see it in the run. She's a woman who believes, no, you know what? I'm from a culture that says you kill monsters. And sometimes monsters look like human beings, right? That is by, in and of itself, a controversial view, you know, because she is saying, you know what? Some people, they're going to, they're, they're going to walk and talk and look like you and me, and they're not going to be. And you put them all the way down and, you know, she'll do it without remorse. She'll may do it with regret. So, I mean, you can see she's just, <clears throat> and to me, these are the things that make her so wonderful and would make for such an amazing book. And these are precisely the things that, you know, DC and now DC Entertainment will be like, no way in hell. You yeah. know? <laughs> no way in hell are we doing an issue where Wonder Woman visits Planned Parenthood. You cannot do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but when she has those great moments, you know, there was the uh, the Trina Robbins Once in Future story with Colleen Dorn a few years ago where it was, it was about spousal abuse. There's a character that can speak to those things just because their political base has been there since 1940. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And uh, her compassion shows in the in, during your run when they're crossing over with the uh, Infinite Crisis with the the Omax, yeah. where she's she's telling her sister Amazon, "Say, wait a minute, there are human beings under there. You can't just take them all out. There's somebody here who who matters, who's a, who's an innocent human being to this." Uh, did that? Um, event interfere with the story you were trying to tell your run ended soon after all that after the maxwell lord moment um the the events uh i cast my mind back um (laughs) we always knew diana bruce and 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 cal were at the heart of infinite crisis, right? And 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 the buildup to it was one that we had very carefully constructed sort of as a collective. Post uh, the OMAC project stuff coming out, I remember, and this was a while ago, so you'll have to forgive me, um, but I remember, you know, very specifically being told this, the, this OMAC thing is great, keep using them. And, uh, and I know that one or two of the issues that I did there, I sort of went like, well, I can, I can make this work in relation to that. Um, but I was fired off the book. Um, I didn't leave it. Uh, I, I was removed following infinite crisis. Uh, and so in that, yeah, you know what, there was a, there were 18 months of stories still left to tell because she had killed a guy. Yeah. Uh, and I felt very strongly and I still do, uh, feel that, you know, what when one is put in the position that I was put into, it cheapens the story. It makes it into a stunt. Um, and it also put me in a position of doing a drive-by on a character that I love. Uh, and I hate that. I mean, I loathe that. I hate it when people come in and they get the book for or they, they take hold of a character for three or four or five or six issues, and then they decide that in those six issues, they're going to make a radical change. <laughs> this character turns out to have been orphaned. <clears throat> this character lost their leg. This character went blind. This character was raped. This character, blah, 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 blah. And then they leave, right? <laughs> and that's a freaking drive-by. You have done something to fundamentally alter that story, and then you're like, hey, you know, boom, I'm out. You can... Um, 
you can argue that bringing back Bucky Barnes was a stunt, but the fact of the matter is that wasn't how Ed ended. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was where he began. And then he stayed and he ran it all the way out. And that's what you do. You know, Diana killing Maxwell Lord was uh, uh, the midpoint of an overall story that I had plotted and planned and had thought I was going to be able to tell. Uh, and I was shocked uh, when I was told I was off the book. I was stunned. Um, and they didn't, they, and it wasn't very cleanly done either, actually. They told me that they were changing artists. Uh, and I was like, all right, well, okay. You know, I, I can work with them. Uh, and it wasn't until another week or so later that they said, oh, no, no, you're not writing it anymore. Um, and that, 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 and, and of course, they had already hired Alan at that point. You know, so I was I was left hanging out there looking like an ass for a good two weeks. Um, and it's unfortunate, you know, and I don't you know, I don't begrudge anybody taking the job or anything like that. It's certainly not, you know, that that's not the issue. It bothers me to this day that I wasn't able to answer that story, that she did something that was fundamentally altering to her character. And that needed to be answered and they didn't answer it. What they did was they immediately swept it under the rug. Yeah. Um, no, in the book, she was, she was starting to deal with it. She was going off to the, to the Hague, to the court, you know, close the, the embassy. Yeah. You could see, you know, where you were heading. It was going to be a, a major storyline. I had really wanted to do a thing. I, I had wanted to do a story where, you know, you imagine being the poor detective who actually figured it out. <laughs> You know, you're the poor son of a bitch who realized who did this. I wanted to do a scene where once that detective finally got to the point where they were able to get a warrant for her arrest, they had to go to Superman and ask Superman to come with them to serve the warrant. Oh, wow. Right? Because what happens if she resists? <laughs> and and I had, you know, and I, and I could see the scene. I really wanted this scene, you know, where <laughs> she'd open the door and there's this detective and there's Superman. You know, and Superman's like, I'm really sorry about this, Diana. <laughs> you know, and the detective says, you know, I have a warrant, warrant for your arrest in the death of Maxwell Lord. Um, you know, you have the right to remain silent and so on. And, you know, her response is, well, I waved my right. I did it. You know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> she's Diana. She's not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, <laughs> I just uh, I really it, it, there was there was some cool stuff to do there. Uh, but you know, every writer's got a thousand. Oh, I had this story and I dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is just one of mine. I mean, uh, what goes through your head when you see the, these things that happened in the past couple of weeks with like Joshua Hale Fialkov and Andy Diggle walking off these high, high profile books, uh, over creative differences. Um, I have been part of making the sausage for long enough. To know that when Bleeding Cool reports on something, Bleeding Cool rarely has the whole story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been around the Sausage Factory long enough to know that a lot of the wrong people get blamed for these things. Gotcha. Uh, it's real easy to point a finger at DiDio and say, this is your fault, your publisher. Um, there's an editor-in-chief there, too, and so on. Mm-hmm. Clearly, you know, clearly these are writers who feel that they're not being given either the respect they're due or the opportunity to do the work or 
you know, being being granted the promises or the promises that they've been granted are not being kept. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, you know, what do I think? That's what I think. I think there's more going on there than we than we are ever going to really know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that it is unlikely. You know, sometimes the finger pointing is in the proper direction, but I find it interesting. Like I said, I find it interesting that for everything that goes wrong, Dan is always the guy that people point at. Mm-hmm. You know, um, people don't know what the publisher's job is. Right. No, they don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, four years ago, when anything went wrong, Dan was the guy they pointed at. Yeah. Um, he was in a different <laughs> job. So at right. a certain point, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and the thing is, and I'm not, you know, this is odd. I do not feel that I'm I am acting in his, in his defense. I will say that Dan has always done a remarkable job of painting, stripping naked, painting himself neon green and jumping up and down saying, over here, over here. Mm-hmm. He, he, he is very, very good at being a lightning rod. Uh, and he, for many years, did it with malice aforethought. Um you know, I think that we, <clears throat> when you're a fan, uh, and even when you're a professional and you're starting out, you want to believe that everybody is working for their best and for the best result and with the best intentions. And <clears throat> as you grow older and as you gain wisdom, you discover that comics is just like every other goddamn job. <laughs> uh, there are people who are lying and cheating and stealing and looking to put a knife in somebody else's back to get a step up. Um, and that the people who actually will do what they say and will deliver when they promised and will cover your back, they're few and far between. And that's no different than anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, any other job, you're going to have the same thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, but I think comics fandom is such that, you know, we have cults of personality and, uh, and the reality can be very, very different from the from what the cult perceives. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we talked a lot about you know the work you've done at those companies, but I feel like we should talk a little bit about the stuff that that's like you said yours, uh, Stephanie. We had a uh, question uh, from a listener about and then something of that nature, right? Yeah, um, one of our Twitter followers, uh, Jethu Khan. Uh, he wanted to know if there was any status update regarding the Lady Saber Kickstarter. Ah, uh, yes. There is a status <laughs> update on the Lady Saber Kickstarter. It's not ready yet. <laughs> I, I, I've, uh, I've scripted our video. We've got the proposal set. We have all of our premiums, and we have now five different bids on the trade. And we need to figure out what is the bid that is going to serve us best. Once we have that, we can determine how much we need to raise. And until we do that, we can't launch. So the hope is to be able to launch before the end of April. Um, you know, we're looking at a 192-page hardcover book uh, in, in a landscape format. It's going to have the first five chapters. It's going to have uh, some extras, some ephemera. We've got some pinups. Um, Carl Kershaw did us a beautiful pinup. Uh, Bethany Westmoreland's going to do a, a one for us. Cully Hamner. We have some others. Um, we really wanted to make a book that you know we were all going to be proud of, but we also have not made a dime off of the website yet, <laughs> and 
we cannot go into the red on this. So uh, I think all of us involved, you know, Rick Burchett and myself and Eric Newsom, you know, we are all painfully aware of those Kickstarter campaigns where people promised too much, um, where people did not deliver. And we just we, we, we don't want to make any of those mistakes. So we are being very careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is coming. We are going to do it. Ideally, if it launches by the end of April, you know, the campaign, if it is successful, will have com- ended by the end of May which means that we'll be able the, the and the book is ready. I mean, we've got an InDesign document. The second we have the money, we can go, <laughs> here, print. Uh, and then it'll depend on how long it takes to print it and get it back, you know, and there'll be the proofing stages and so on. And then we have some stretch goals that we want to do if we, if we can hit the money. But again, to do those stretch goals, we want to price out what those will be. For instance, we want to do an ephemera book um, that would be, there's a character, if you read the webcomic Lady Saber and the Pirates of the Ineffable Ether, there's a character who's never appeared in the strip but uh, has almanac entries. His name's Edwin Winshear, and he's sort of the chronicler of the yeah. sphere. And we want to do sort of like a 16-page or you know 32-page little pocket book that's like Winshear's Guide to the Sphere. <laughs> um, that you know that that to me would be so cool to be able to make that. But, you know, okay, how much is that going to cost? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so yes, there's your answer. Hopefully, hopefully before the end of April, and trust me, everybody who is remotely close to me in social media will hear about it. <laughs> uh, we'll be screaming it on the webpage, and I'll be not shutting up about it on Tumblr and Facebook and Twitter, and I may even learn to fly a plane and skywrite it, God knows. So. <laughs> Well, it was one of my favorite web comics I discovered last year, and it, it's so many bits and pieces of. Uh, remember the old movie, The Assassination Bureau, with zeppelins flying over castles or whatever. <laughs> it's it's yeah. Mark Schultz's Xenozoic Tales. It's Sky Captain. Can you yep. explain to people exactly what Lady Saber looks like is about? And well, I mean, the the, the quick version is it's 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 a steampunk action adventure serial, right? In 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 the tradition of. Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then going back before that, uh, you know, the Republic serials and so on. It, it is, you know, it's got elements of a Western. It's got sword fights. It's got dog fights. It's got, yes, Zeppelins floating through endless, vast star fields that are the ether. There's magic, and there are even some monsters. And the main character, Lady Seneca Saber, is, as she will be the first person to tell you, absolutely fabulous. <laughs> um, and really quite remarkable. And you should follow her on her journeys. Uh, and, you know, it is what it really is, is it's just us having as much fun as we can with a comic that we would never in a million years have been able to publish anywhere else. <laughs> so uh, it is, it really is, it is, it is a gleeful mashup of pulp serial adventure i mean i guess that's the best way to put it uh and and it has some it has a little more depth perhaps than one might expect from that and every now and then we 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 try to be emotionally honest and and maybe even try to move you or surprise you but mostly you know it's free and it's fun and it publishes mondays and thursdays so there you go there's the the short answer (laughs) Mm -hmm. Awesome. I haven't um, figured it out. I'm incapable of giving you a short answer. <laughs> that's okay. All the, the answers have been great. Uh, 
you know, uh, you do have a new book coming out uh, from Image as well. Yeah, Lazarus. Lazarus, Lazarus. yes. Yeah, uh, we'll be out at the end of June. Still doing pre-orders. I think you've got another week or two if you want to pre-order issue one. It's drawn by Michael Lark, uh, who, frankly, I've been wanting to do something like this with since he and I met doing Gotham Central. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I love working with Michael. He's such a great collaborator. Um, he is so very, very smart uh, and so very, very talented and so very, very, very critical. Um, he <laughs> is a perfectionist, but he also doesn't let me get away with anything. And I love it um, because every writer gets a little lazy. You know, every now and then we'll cheat. Michael never lets me cheat. You know? <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get an email. What was that? Yeah, <laughs> what, what, what was that? Did you read this? Um, so we're we're excited about it. I, I the the shorthand for it is uh, "Children of Men meets The Godfather." <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 basically it's set in a dystopian future where there has been a near total economic collapse, so that wealth is concentrated amongst a very 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 small percentage of the population. And everybody else is either desperately poor uh, or working for those people. Um, (laughs) And that concentration of wealth has sort of broken itself up into family groups. And those families control everything uh, within their, their domains. And they are now desperate to hold what they have. And they're paranoid because they've got millions of people who have nothing and don't really like them. Um, <laughs> and then they've got other families that want what they've got. And into all of this is our, our main character, uh, who's a woman named Forever Carlisle. And she is the genetically engineered youngest daughter of the Carlisle family. And she is a she's what's called a Lazarus. She's sort of part part spy, part assassin, part military leader, part bodyguard for the family. And each family has somebody in this position. And that individual in each family has been sort of invested with the best of the family's resources to make them what they are. So forever is a genetically designed perfection in many ways. Moray, the family Moray, you know, they don't they don't do genetics. That was not their thing. But they're real good at, you know, software and mechanical engineering. So they've uh, they've managed to get quite far with cybernetics, for instance. So this is the world. And, and the book sort of follows both the political and more overt struggles uh, amidst the family and sort of forever discovering who she is. Uh, like so many of the things I write, it's a nature versus nurture story. You know, she has been designed to be one thing, uh, and she has been raised to be that thing. So is it a question of her nature or her nurture? Um, because it's a pretty nasty world, frankly. She, she's got some reprehensible relatives. <laughs> well, awesome. Um, so that's out at the end of June. Um, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, Lady Saber is going on, like you said, two times a week. Uh, you publish yep. it. Um, where else can people get in touch with you and uh, look for your work? Oh, um, well, there's a website, gregrucka.com, but it's not often updated. Um, I'm on Tumblr. 
what is the name of my Tumblr? It's called Front Towards Enemy. And I'm on Twitter, and I tend to talk about what I'm doing there occasionally. Right now, I'm not talking about a lot, though, because I've, um, you, you really have no idea how rare uh, this, this, this interview timing is, uh, because I'm really I'm in the bunker on this book trying to get it done. Um, and that should be out sometime in 2014. This is the sequel to the last novel, which was called Alpha, published by Mulholland Books. Uh, and still available from fine electronic uh, and and physical outlets everywhere. Uh, and Alpha actually will be out in paperback, I believe, in January. And then this one, which is right now called Bravo, uh, and maybe called Bravo Indigo before I'm finished, uh, should be out, like I said, about fall of 2014, I think. Uh, and there's some other comic stuff coming, but I can't talk about it yet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Greg, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I, I, I always appreciate the, the chance to ramble on and on and on about myself and my work. Um, <laughs> thank you for providing the opportunity. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You gave us some great stories and, uh, and a lot of uh, stuff to think about. You know, it's, it's great to hear the passion of the people who write the stuff that we're passionate about. You know? And uh, I, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. Oh, in all sincerity and all joking uh, aside, it really was a pleasure. Uh, I would love to come back and talk some more at some point. So Absolutely. You come back Certainly. anytime. We'd love to have you. Um, so that's it for this special episode of Talking Comics. For Steve, Bob, Stephanie, and Greg Rucka, until next time on Talking Comics, to be continued. Continued.